But it's good to be back bringing God's word this morning. Amen. After a two-week break, I guess, in some senses, at least a break from, from me for you all. Uh, two weeks ago, I was down in Richmond, Virginia, preaching at River City Baptist Church. And then last week down in Louisville, Kentucky, preaching at Third Avenue Baptist Church. Both those congregations send their warm uh, welcome to you all, their greetings. Uh, both churches in, in different ways have some connections to our church, Third Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, has been one of our supporting churches for the last few years, and River City Baptist Church in Richmond is planted, was planted earlier this year by one of the former elders of Third Avenue. So, uh, again, one of the things we want to be doing is, is recognizing that the Lord's kingdom is vast and big, and we are but one small part of that, and so we mean to encourage and support other local churches. One of the ways we do that is to have other brothers from other churches fill our pulpit and give us God's word, and some of us go to other churches to encourage those saints. So, uh, we praise God for the, the, the gift of his word to be proclaimed everywhere. And praise God for, for the gift of gifted brothers who can bring God's word. Amen. Two weeks ago, our brother, Pastor Warner, gave us God's word from Revelation chapter 3. And then last week, our brother, Joseph Dix, brought us a good word from 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, verses 6 through 15 of chapter 3. And so we praise God for the gift of his word. And this morning, though, we return to our, our study through the book of James. If you are here for the first time. Generally, what we do at Temple Hills Baptist Church is spend the majority of our time preaching from the Bible. Now, perhaps that scares you because I just spent maybe 15 minutes praying. You're like, I thought that was going to be the biggest chunk. Well, there's more still yet. Amen. But we want to prioritize God's Word as central in the life of a local church. And so, generally, what we do is just start a book, we read it. Right, And we don't stop that sermon series generally until we end that book. We think that the consecutive exposition through books of the Bible is the best way to understand the text of Scripture. To read it in context, and to understand it, to interpret it, and to apply it to our lives. And so this morning we'll continue our study from the book of James where we've been over the last seven or eight weeks. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle who was converted seen the risen Jesus and believed in his half-brother and who, who calls himself a slave of Christ, a servant of Jesus like all of us are. James is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament and is written to Christians, a Christian congregation scattered who are enduring trials, but allowing those trials outside to, to reduce some fractures inside. That's often how it, how it is, isn't it? As the world grows hostile and and bring some kind of conflicts and, and fractures, often the, the church emulates the world. It has its own kind of fractures. And, and James was writing to a congregation where well, some of that was happening. And James wanted to encourage them, don't just say you're Christians. Mm. Right? Even in the midst of heavy trials, live like Christians. Amen. That's what he's wanting them to do throughout this book. And that's what he's wanting us to do today. 2,000 years later, as we endure various trials, James is saying, don't just call yourself Christians, Christian. We want you to live like Christians. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, return with me to James chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find it on page 1,012. This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12 together. James chapter 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts around the, the central idea that I think is, is found in this passage. The main idea of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The Christian life is serious business. It requires intentionally fighting against your sin and fighting for holiness. As long as you can write it in your bulletin if you don't feel like writing. The Christian life is serious business. It requires intentionally fighting against your sin and fighting for holiness. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll, we'll hang our, our thoughts around two activities from that main idea that James is calling us to do. In light of what that central idea is, James is calling us to do two things, which will be the two points of the sermon. Number one, examine yourselves. We see that in verses one through six. And number two, exercise your faith. We see that in verses seven through twelve. Two, Points, examine yourselves, verses 1 through 6, and exercise your faith, verses 7 through 12. First, examine yourselves. If you jog your memories a few weeks, you remember that the last time we were in James, he began a discussion on the differences between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Amen. Up in verses 13 through 18 of, of chapter 3, he noted that worldly wisdom was marked by selfish ambition that exalts self. And that leads to foul practices. Whereas godly wisdom was marked by meekness and gentleness that produced peace. Well, here James picks up on that conversation. Although there's a chapter break between the chapters 3 and 4, those chapter breaks are something that are later editions, right? Those are in the original text. Right? James here is just continuing the, the, the previous discussion from chapter 3. Right? He's not breaking in his thoughts. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 3, much like he began the previous passage in, in verse 13 of chapter 3, by asking a question. James asks a question here in chapter 4 about the root of conflicts. Uh, there was fighting going on in the church. But you notice just how transparent the Bible is? It never presents the people of God as perfect people. No, we are perfectly imperfect. We are a perfectly imperfect people who worship a perfect Savior, but are being steadily transformed into his image. And part of that transformation is to fight against sin. Especially, James says, the, the sin of separation, the sin of schisms in the body. James sees conflicts among church members and like a good doctor, he doesn't just diagnose the problem and leave things as they are. No, he wants to get at the root of the issue. He's not so much concerned with, with the presenting problems. He wants to pinpoint the underlying cause. And he wants us to discover it along with them. I mean, isn't that what you want your physician to do? There might be an obvious lump on your arm. But you don't simply want your physician to just remove the lump. You want him to remove the lump and to discover the cancer in your body that's causing the lump on your body. Amen. Well, James here is a good physician of the soul. He wants us to discover what's beneath the disputes that keep on boiling up, that keep on popping up in the church. What causes quarrels and fights among you, yes? It's an 
introspective question, a diagnostic question, the kind of question James is meaning to instruct us here that we ought to ask when conflicts arise, or when there's a disagreement with another church member, or when you and your spouse have a fight, we ought to do some examination to discover what is lying behind it. What kind of answers do we usually return as the cause to conflicts? Many of us locate the source of our issues in other people. If my husband was more assertive, if he led our family more biblically, if he was more affectionate and more gentle and more generous, we wouldn't be having any of these problems. Or if my wife was more respectful, if she was more submissive, if she wasn't so loud and so demanding, everything in my life would be okay. Maybe it's a co-worker's fault. Or the pastor's fault. Or your kid's fault. They're the reason for your rage. It's their fault that you flew off the handle like you did. You know, many of us place the roots of our problems with other people. Some of us place blame for our conflicts with our cultures. Look, that's just how we do things in my country. My culture. We're just naturally hot-headed. Naturally strong-willed. You're just going to have to deal with that. Or we claim, I'm just a product of my environment. Where I'm from. How I grew up. The climate in my home, it contributes to why I act the way I do now. I mean, my mama told me not to take no stuff from nobody, and so I don't. And oftentimes, even if only silently in our hearts, we attribute our actions to God. If God would just give me this job, if he would have given me a different husband or a different wife, or if he would finally give me a husband or a wife, I wouldn't be acting the way I am. I'd be satisfied. It's his fault that I'm the way I am. He made me, and he gave me these circumstances. You notice how quickly we cast blame on other people, on certain events or circumstances in our lives? Ask us the reason for our actions and get ready for a hundred different responses. But James doesn't even give us a chance here. He asked the question, and before even giving us an opportunity to give the wrong response, he answers his own question. It's like a you know cardinal rule that you break. You can't answer your own question. But James asked a question, and he's like, let me shut your mouth before you say the wrong thing, and I'll answer it for you. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Look at the second half of verse 1. It's this, that your passions are at war within you. In other words, don't look without. Look within you are the problem. Amen. There's a war going on inside of us. For those of us who served at some point in the military, perhaps this verse especially stands out. You know what it is to be near combat. You know the real dangers of warfare. But for most of us, we only know war from a distance. I mean, we hear about the war in Ukraine, and, and we have empathy, but it doesn't really affect us. We don't wake up with war on our minds like people who live in those war-torn countries. The, the closer in proximity that a problem is, the more we feel it. Well, James here wants us to see how close the problem is. There is a war inside you. You need to wake up to that reality to take this seriously. It points to the oft-repeated biblical emphasis of there being an unseen spiritual battle against the forces of evil. And one of our main foes is our own flesh. Amen. Our sinful passion, our sinful desires, our sinful ambitions that reside in our hearts. The fight against God's good purposes for us. You know, that there's a battle, a war, can actually be a good sign. It might not sound like a battle, a war, it's not, that's horrible. What it actually can be a good sign 
Because at one point, there was nothing for your flesh to war against. You loved sin and lived for it. There was no fight against it. You, you always gave in. You were led by and dominated by sin. But, but when you turn to the Lord, when you give your life to Jesus, he puts a new heart and a new spirit in you. One that hates sin and wants to live for God. But that old nature, that old man, that old woman keeps on welling up, doesn't it? It keeps on wanting to constantly fight against what God is doing. And James wants us to take notice. We, the, the natural us, the old us, we are the biggest problem behind all our problems. Amen. Right? We are the biggest problem, singular, behind every single one of our problems. And James says in verse 2, you desire and don't have. So you murder. You covet and can't obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Now, it's probably not physical murder that James has in mind here. That would be a terrible congregation. It's just killing each other, right? <laughs> but probably it's killing people with your tongue. As James talked about earlier in chapter 3. Cursing those made in the image of God. The murder begins in your heart as anger. And it comes out through your hands or through your lips, destroying people whom God has made. You covet certain things. You crave them, you long for them, but don't get them. So you fight. You have conflicts. You've already noted in this book back in chapter 3, verse 1, that many in the congregation were vying to be teachers, to be elders. They wanted the esteem and the recognition that that office brought. And James had to slow them in their zeal. Not many of you should become teachers. Would brought greater responsibility and greater judgment. The congregation James is writing to might be similar to our own, similar to you, similar to me, seeking stuff, seeking prestige, seeking respectability, you know, seeking those things that you can hide really well in your heart and other people not know. They, they saw other people who, who had something that they didn't. And in their pursuit of it, they would do anything to have it. As James said earlier, the, the selfish ambition in their hearts resulted in every kind of foul practice. Friends, take notice. Take notice of the dangerous nature of letting desires rule you. Take notice of the dangerous nature of letting desires rule you. When those desires go unmet, they turn you into a moral monster willing to do anything to anyone. And friends, they can be desires for good things. But when those desires become your functional God, they undo you and wreak havoc on everyone around you. I mean, take for example, we talked about just a minute ago, the desire that some of them had maybe the desire that some of you have to be teachers, to be elders. That is a good desire. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if anyone aspires or desires to the office of overseer, the office of elder, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. But let's say you're here for a few years. And, and for a number of different reasons, that desire to be an elder remains unfulfilled. Well, what does it stir up inside of you? Is it callousness? Does it make your heart hard and your ears hard, clogged up to love and to listen to elders that the Lord has raised up in this local body? Does it lead you to lead a campaign to delegitimize their ministry? Certainly you can do better than them. Certainly they aren't the best we can offer. Hmm. Well, what's driving that? What's the cause of it? Is it a desire to be noticed? A desire to be taken seriously that, that you've never really had in your own family? Or in your workplace? And now, of all places, not even in the local church? 
Or maybe what you really desire is relational intimacy. For someone who, who gets you. Someone who deeply knows and loves you. For someone who serves and protects you. For, for someone who deeply encourages and equips you. For, for somebody who's got your back no matter what. For someone who completely satisfies you. That's a good desire. But does it rule you so much that when it's unmet, you explode in anger? Or simmer in discontentment and disgruntlement? Does it make your spouse your enemy when you share your grand plans for a new venture? Or your desire to get a new job? Or your longing to buy this expensive piece of clothing or furniture or equipment? And they respond, well, honey, I'm not sure that's the best thing for our family right now. Do you interpret that response as a hostile action? She don't care about me at all. Doesn't she know how important this is to me? To think about it, she never supports my desires. I can't trust her. I don't need her. Friends, you see what happens when we allow desires to dominate? They warp our minds and cause us to war against others. They take the place of God in our hearts and in our lives, and they become our idols. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, the idols in your heart? What are some of the values, desires that drive you? That if other people don't meet, not only lead to your discouragement, but fuel your destructive behavior towards it. Is it the desire for respect? The desire for encouragement? The desire for love? I mean, do some work. Poke behind, think about it in your mind, poke behind your latest disagreement, your latest disgruntlement, your latest discouragement. Pop the bubble of that, that argument, that conflict. What was the cause of it? What idols might that situation be exposing in you? What am I too highly valuing that when it wasn't met, it led to that outburst? Friends, that's a, a worthy self-examination because idolatry in our hearts has horrible consequences. Mm -hmm. The major and most deadly consequence is that it diminishes God. When other things become your God, you lose focus and have no need for the real God. I mean, notice how James exposes that here through the action of prayerlessness. He says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. When you're so focused on having your desires met, getting what you want you don't even think about engaging God in the process. Amen. He becomes a mere spectator in your lifelong pursuit for happiness. So many of us have longings, have desires that we fight against others to have fulfilled, but don't wrestle in prayer with God to see answered. As the hymn writer expresses, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Amen. Everything to God in prayer. All your desires you can ask him to fulfill. Do you not do that because you don't think about God at all? Do you not do that because you don't think that God is good? Prayer puts us and our desires in the proper place under God's hand and dependent upon him to provide. But maybe you do pray, but you still don't get what you want. Well, James says in verse three is because often when we pray, we ask for things wrongly and simply to spend it on our own desires, on our own passions. Friends, God is a good God. And because God is good, he often withholds from us what is harmful. And what is harmful 
is giving us the things we want, but then only serve ourselves. Self-serving prayers, self-exalting prayers, God is good not to answer. I mean, have you ever thought of the Lord's mercy in your life for not answering some of your prayers? I think about some of the relationships that you prayed, Lord, let him be the one. Thank the Lord he wasn't. Amen. Oh my gosh. Amen. I think about some of the, the things you prayed for that were foolish prayers that were only to serve your flesh that God was so good to say no to. Amen. God is good to say no to those kind of prayers. Because like your mama said, he knows what's best for you. All right. God made us to live not for ourselves, but for him. We were made to worship him and him alone. We were made to give him glory, not to get glory for ourselves. Amen. What it all exposes in us. Raging desires that become our idols. Prayerlessness, self-serving prayers. What it all exposes is an infidelity to our creator. A two-timing on the one and only true God. Which is why James calls the believers here adulterers in verse 4. Let me look there at verse 4 with me. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to know, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James says, you're acting like you belong to the world and not like you belong to the Lord. That was interesting. Many of us professing Christians would strongly deny that we're worldly. I mean, it's the world out there that rages against God. It's the world that celebrates sin. It's the world that supports gay marriage. It's the world that promotes gender fluidity. It's the world that, that revels in drunkenness and sexual immorality that, that has no moral standards. I'm godly. Amen. James says, no, you ain't. Not with the way you're acting. Yeah, you might not sleep around or get drunk, but you're arguing with one another, having conflicts with one another, which comes from the same root problem that the world's sins come from. Desires that rule and ruin you. Personal pleasure or esteem or fulfillment have taken up center stage in your life, have taken up the place reserved for God. You've removed him from the throne and put yourself in his place. Making you happy is all that really matters. Man, that's the root problem behind many of our conflicts. Many of our sins. Amen. That's how the world thinks. Sadly, sometimes that's how we think. James is out to expose some things in us. But notice what James does here. Like a, like a good pastor, he exposes some things in us, and then he exposes us to God's word. He exposes us to the scriptures. He shows why how we live, why how we think is so bad. Verse 5, he says, the scripture says, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Amen. And now you can search the entire Bible and not find a quotation with the exact verse with these same exact words in it. What, what James is doing here is, is summarizing what the whole Bible teaches. It's similar to, to when we might say, the Bible says Jesus is God. Well, there's no one verse that explicitly says those exact words, but that's clearly the Bible's teaching. Well, that's the same thing that James does here. The Bible teaches that God made us for himself. Amen. He put his spirit in us. In a broad and general way, it applies to every single human being. Every single human being who is a spiritual being. Every person is an embodied soul whom God brought into existence. I mean, notice back in the creation account, God breathed his spirit into Adam. And the text tells us that he became a living creature. All of us are alive 
Because God caused us to live. All of us are still alive because God right now, even with the breath we just took, is causing us to live. It's his spirit, not our wills, that's the reason for our existence today and every single day that we've ever lived. How jealous is he then? And rightly so, when the creatures he's created turn from him and live for themselves. As if he doesn't exist. As if their very existence doesn't depend upon him. How jealous is he then? And rightly so, when the creatures he's made new people, a new creation through Jesus Christ, whom he's indwelt not simply with a human spirit, but with his Holy Spirit. When those people even live as the world lives for themselves, as if God has not purchased them with the precious blood of his son, as if God isn't living in them by his spirit. How horrible is it to live like the world and make God your enemy? Amen. All of us are confronted here. Because if we were honest, we've all been guilty. Even this week, we've allowed our desires to reign over everything else. We've put ourselves at the center of the universe, making everything revolve around us. I mean, we focused on and highly prized me being satisfied, me being cared for, me being congratulated, me being appreciated. It could have been something as simple as she didn't even notice I cleaned up the house to have guests over. None of the guests said thank you for the meal that I slaved over the stove for. Amen. It was us in center stage becoming the recipients of praise. Getting all the kind of glory. It's produced in us all kinds of responses. If people do praise us, if they give us what we desire, then we're content. But if they don't, they become targets for our terrible behavior. Amen. All of us are guilty before God of idolatry. Of being spiritual adulterers. Of having our allegiances and our affections set on something other than God. We deserve, all of us, God's wrath. As a jealous God who made us for himself, we deserve to be punished by him for our rebellion against him. But praise God for verse 6. But he gives more grace. Our sins are many, but we sang earlier, he gives more mercy. Our sins are many, but we read here, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and at this time, James does quote a specific scripture from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives favor that we do not deserve. The greatest act of grace that God has ever given is this, that he sent his one and only son to come and save sinners like us. Who made much of ourselves and made little of God. With all our rebellion, with all our behavior of spitting in God's face and acting as if we are God, God did not respond as he ought to have responded. He did not repay us as our sins deserve, but the Bible tells us that he responded with mercy, with grace. He sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life of obedience that we should have lived. To, to carry out every single one of God's commands. To love the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. And then with all that obedience to God, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Amen. He died in our place for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. He exalted himself. He was raised from the grave and put back to his rightful place on the throne beside God our Father and commanding all of us to turn from our sins and to give our lives to Jesus. Amen. Friends, if you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. Be humble today. Recognize yourself as a sinner, as an enemy of God in need of salvation and turn from your sins today and receive the salvation that God gives all those who turn from their sins in trusting Christ. Amen. 
He gives more grace. All right. He gives more grace. That's not just a promise at the entrance of the Christian life. That's the promise and the certainty in our ongoing walk with the Lord. Amen. As conflicts and disputes continue to plague us, he gives more grace. As our flesh continues to rise up, tempting us to act like the world and exalting our desires to the place of God, he gives more grace. Amen. God gives more grace All right. to help us live for him and not for our sins. Amen. So live for him and not for yourself. Amen. That leads us to point number two where, where James commands us to exercise our faith. Exercise your faith. That is to, to, to work out your faith. And again, that's something of the overall theme of this book. For Christians to act like Christians. Amen. To do deeds, to, to do works that demonstrate that you genuinely are a Christian. But James doesn't mean for us to, to, to white knuckle through the Christian life. For, for Christianity to be reduced to a list of duties that we do on our own. No, notice the motivation and fuel for our actions that James gives us here. The grace of God. If verse 6 is true, that God gives more grace, that he gives grace to the humble, then by that grace we live. Amen. By that grace we strive against sin and live for God. Amen. God gives more grace, verse 6, than verse 7. Therefore, because he gives more grace, submit yourselves to God. That command there in verse 7 is, is one of 11 commands or imperatives, 11 actions that James gives us in verses 7 through 12. If you're writing your Bibles, you might want to number them as you, as you see them. In verse 7, submit yourselves to God. The second command, resist the devil. In verse 8, draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Verse 9, be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. We see here that grace is not passive. It works. God's grace empowers you to live for God. Amen. Grace is not something you just bank on after you sin. It's not a medicine that you take after you've messed up to magically cure you of all the consequences. Grace is not some spiritual morning after pill. No, don't misunderstand me. Thank God that there is grace when we sin. Amen. But friends, if you intentionally sin with the rationale, God says he gives more grace, then you have not understood grace at all. You haven't understood the promise that he gives grace to the humble. Not to those who pride themselves at still sinning. No, God's grace empowers you not to sin. Amen. To strain and to work to not give in to the flesh. I mean, that's the testimony of the scriptures. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Amen. Oh, or consider what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. I, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Right. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Amen. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Amen. The Christian life requires some activity, some intentionality, some grace-fueled, all-out effort to fight sin and fight for holiness. Amen. Grace Amen. fuels you to fight. Amen. Since God gives more grace, James says, do these 11 things that he lists in verses 7 through 12. Again, in verse 7, submit yourselves to God. 
and give your entire life to him. Again, for some of you this morning, that might mean for the first time trusting your life to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Turning to him for salvation. But, but for all of us, James shows us this is an all-of-life duty. We are to offer our entire lives to God as an act of total devotion. Amen. What might total submission to God look like? Hmm. Maybe in your mind you imagine it means moving to some monastery. All you do is fast and pray and read the Bible to be totally devoted to the Lord. Well, friends, the Bible never encourages monastic living as godly living. Right, look at Jesus. He was all over the place. He's going to weddings and parties and banquets and feasts and without sin. Right? It doesn't mean you just remove yourself from the world. But you live in the world with everything in, in, in submission to the Lord. Lord, I'm trying to please you in this. I, I want to, to put my life under you in this. Often, what that means is submitting ourselves to those whom God has put over us. Submit yourselves to the Lord in part, at least means submitting to those God has put over you. Amen. It means wives submitting to husbands. As Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. It means children submitting to parents. As Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 tells us. It means employees submitting to bosses, as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 tells us. It means citizens submitting to governing authorities whether you like them or not. As Romans chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, it, it means church members submitting to pastors. As Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 tells us. Now that's hard, isn't it? You know why? Because our passions in us rise up and want us to live for ourselves. We don't want nobody over us. Remember again, these believers wanted to be the teachers. They didn't want to be submitted to the teachers. But James calls them and us here to stop submitting to our own desires. Stop submitting to a worldly way of thinking and instead submit to God. James moves to another enemy in verse 7 that we need to move away from in our quest to submit to God. The devil. So just notice so far in this passage that the three enemies that James has introduced us to. Our own passions or the flesh in verse 1, the world in verse 4, and the devil here in verse 7. It's the three enemies that together, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 3 tell us, made us spiritually dead. We walked following the course of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the devil. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And what did it all, it all mean for us? Paul says it meant that we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace you have been saved. Yeah. And it's that same grace that saved us that James now says empowers us to resist the devil. We were children of wrath, but now we are children of God. Amen. We were dead in our trespasses, but now we are alive in Christ. We were once slaves to sin, but now we have become slaves of God and slaves to righteousness. Amen. And now we can say no to the devil. We can do what we once were unable to do. We can resist him. Amen. And friends, we must resist him because he constantly tempts us. Amen. The devil does not take any days off. He didn't take the Friday after Thanksgiving off to, to sleep around. He was there, tempting you to continue gluttony. Well, some others say. He constantly roams, the Bible tells us. 
like a roaring lion, lion, seeking whom he might devour. But we need not be afraid. Amen. Because just as Jesus resisted the powerful temptations from the devil in the wilderness so that the devil left him, so we who have the spirit of Jesus Christ living in us can resist the devil and the promise James gives us. Amen. He will flee from us. Amen. Saints, I hope that encourages you in your fight against sin. You are not powerless. Temptations to sin can be resisted. Amen. Friends, the devil is as bad and dangerous as the Bible says he is. And friends, you, by the grace of God, can resist him. As the Bible says that you can. So resist the devil. But how do you do that? I mean, what is James's secret devil resistance strategy? Verse 8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. James' solution for resisting the devil is not to rebuke him or to shake the devil off. It's not turning back to him and saying, no, 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 Mr. Satan. But rather turning to God and saying, yes, 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 Lord. Amen. Amen. Fleeing from Satan, fleeing from sin means fleeing to God. Amen. There is no middle ground. And no safe space in between. Well, I kind of, you know, I ain't, I ain't made up my mind yet who I'm going to serve. No, you, you got to turn from one to the other. Amen. You must be submitted to someone. Nobody is a free agent. James says, you must draw near to God. Amen. Not once or constantly, not back then when you walked the aisle or when you signed the card or when you got baptized. You must draw near to God every single moment of every single day. You must keep drawing near to him. And notice again the promise. He will draw near to you. Mm. Now this verse isn't talking about salvation. We need to weigh verses like this with other verses like John chapter 6 verse 44. Where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Amen. Alright? We need to understand here that James is not giving a doctrine of election or of salvation. He's not talking about how people get saved. He's writing to a group of people who are already saved. And he's talking about how they now must live. Mm. This is not a doctrine of salvation. This is a doctrine of sanctification. Amen. How do you grow in Christ's likeness? You keep drawing near to God. Amen. Constantly. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you often find that the world and temptations to sin feel very close to home. While on the contrary, God feels very distant. Mm. How might this verse help you? Do you really believe this promise? That if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Amen. I remember a few years ago, an older man was teaching and he commented from this verse and said, you are as near to God as you want to be. This is done. You are as near to God as you want to be. That's often true, isn't it? We feel God's distance. We feel we need to be closer to Him, but we don't draw near to Him. We don't do anything about how we feel. We need to stop contemplating nearness to God. Considering how we need to draw near to him. Telling others how I need to grow in my faith. Telling others that I need to be closer to the Lord. We need to stop doing that and just draw near to him. And it's not some extraordinary actions that are required. It's the ordinary means of grace that God uses to draw us near to him. Amen. Amen. Praying to him. Reading his word. Reading the Bible. Gathering with other Christians weekly for corporate worship. A taking of the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping with other Christians throughout the week. 
ordinary things, but extraordinarily hard on them. Because Satan don't want you to be close to God. I mean, if you can draw close to the Lord, Satan will do everything possible to make you not do that. That's why you feel like, oh, I'm too tired today to do it. Well, too rainy outside to go to church today. Whereas Satan is, is, is meaning to use every single thought, every single false judgment to kill your desire to draw near to the Lord. And not only Satan, your flesh as well, your old man don't want you to live as the new you. That old flesh wants you to live like the 2000 you or the 1970s you or whenever it was that you was somebody totally different than the person we know. Satan don't want you to grow and draw near to the Lord. But the Lord does. The same Lord who out of his mercy without any invitation from you drew near to you and brought his son before you. Do you remember the time? Think about when you were a non-Christian. You weren't like, I'm running really hard to go find the Lord. Many of us were far away from the Lord and without any inclination from us, any invitation from us, he drew near to us. Amen. Do you think the same God who drew near to us then is not meaning to draw near to us now? The problem is not with him. The problem is with us. Amen. Amen. Draw near to him. Husbands, take the lead in helping your family draw near to God. Be the spiritual leader in your home. Pray often. Talk about Jesus Christ often with your children. Set a standard that every Sunday we are going to church. Amen. They might not like you for it. It's okay. All right. They'll love you for it later. I trust. Ask your wife this afternoon, how can I help you draw nearer to God? How can I help you pray more? How can I help you read the Bible more? It's probably going to require some sacrifice. Maybe that you wake up earlier and help get the kids ready for school. Step I hope that's not your answer. <laughs> uh, it, it, it might require that you shoulder more of the load if you're doing chores around the home. It might mean that you do more to free your busy wife up to pursue time with the Lord. That's a manly thing to do. That's a leadership kind of thing to do. To help your family draw near to the Lord. Amen. Single people desiring marriage. Continue to pray for the Lord to pray, provide the good gift of a spouse. It's fine to, to want a, a spouse, but, but don't waste your time lamenting that God hasn't provided one. Amen. Instead, use this season of freedom from the many anxieties about caring for a spouse and children that marriage inevitably brings. Use that free time to de devote yourself to God. To spend more time drawing near to Him. Amen. As you grow closer to the Lord, you, you go further from the devil. You go further from the sins the devil desires you to do and that God hates for you to do. Amen. Uh, that's what James gets at at the end of verse 8 when he says, to cleanse your hands, to purify your heart. Drawing closer to a holy God reveals more of the ugliness of your sins and calls us to repent. James doesn't envision repentance simply as saying, I'm sorry, for asking for forgiveness. For James, repentance means stop doing certain things. Mm. Clean your hands that carry out all this evil. Amen. Purify your hearts that harbor evil thoughts. Put sin to death. Amen. Friends, that might mean trading in your smartphone if it's causing you to sin. It might mean unsubscribing from Spotify. If it's filling your heart with unhelpful desires or your mouth with unwholesome words, don't let repentance live in the kind of ethereal realm. Mm -hmm. Something that you know you should do but doesn't have any concrete action. Mm -hmm. Take action to do away with your sins. Mm -hmm. And have the right attitude towards your sin. 
James says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't treat sin lightly. It's the same as some in James's day were doing. They're treating sin smallly. They thought that talking badly and harshly to one another wasn't all that evil. That desiring to gain favor with the rich by showing partiality wasn't all that bad. Perhaps they looked down at the world for, for their outrageous sins and proudly thought like the Pharisee in Luke's parable. I, I thank God that I'm not like other men. Amen. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Well, they should have been weeping, grieving over the grievousness of their own sins. Friends, the posture of Christian maturity is that no sin seems small. And most of all, not your own. The posture of a mature Christian is one that all sin grieves them, and especially their own sin more than other people's sin. We should never belittle sin or take it lightly. We should never treat it trivially. Jesus Christ died for sin. Did he die for something trivial? For something small? No, he died for something serious. Far be it from us to treat small what the Savior treated great. Amen. Far be it from us to rejoice at that which the Savior was sorrowful about. Far be it from us to live in and enjoy the sins that the Savior shed his precious blood for. Oh Lord, we must pray, forgive us for our disrespect and belittling of sin. Help us to see and to grieve over sin as you did. Amen. We must not be happy at exalting ourselves and our desires and the sins that God hates. Mm -hmm. Instead, we must be humble before the Lord. Amen. Notice that command in verse 10. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. Amen. Exalt yourselves and God will reject you. But humble yourself and he will help you. Amen. He will lift you up. It's reemphasizing what James said earlier in, in verse 6. He gives grace. He shows favor to the humble. Self-exaltation only brings God's judgment. But a humble posture before God as, as subject, as servant, as slave, as dependent, wholly upon him will lead to a future exalted status. It's like Jesus modeled for us. Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen. Humility now, exaltation later. In Christ, that's our duty and our faith as well. Humble ourselves before God and he will exalt us. Amen. Lastly, James' final command deals with the tongue again. He says in verse 11, not to speak evil against your brothers. For to speak evil against your brother is to speak evil against the law and to judge the law. We've noted in this book how dangerous a weapon the tongue is. And James started out this chapter talking about fights and quarrels among brothers. Not physical fights, but verbal fights. And notice how he closes this section here. And not simply with a rebuke not to speak evil, but with a reminder of how horrible it is. You speak evil against your brother. This is someone in your own spiritual family. Someone whom Jesus Christ died for to adopt into God's family. The same sacrifice he made for them, he made for you. So why do you fight against them? Why do you use your words to tear them apart? Why do you stand over them in judgment? There's only one judge, James says, and that's God. And he has forgiven them. Yet you refuse to. You continue to criticize and condemn them with your tongue, with your speech. Who are you to judge your neighbor? 
who are you to sit as judge over God's law? The law James is referring to is, is what he talked about back in chapter 2, verse 8, the, the royal law. What he said was to love our neighbor as ourselves. Where is love in the midst of a confidence? Where is love in the midst of a sharp criticism? Where is love in mocking or slandering the brother or sister in Christ? It's missing. And often God is as well. James means for God's people to live for God. Which inevitably means loving those God has put around us. Don't fight against them. Fight your real enemy, James says. Your sin. Fight to be holy before the Lord. James helps us in these 12 verses to see that the Christian life is serious business. It requires intentionally fighting against your sin and fighting for holiness. Mm -hmm. So brothers and sisters, fight! But just make sure it's the right battle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that convicts and condemns, but it also encourages and equips. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to live holy as your people, to fight against sin and to pursue holiness. Lord, we pray that we'd be a people who are humble before you, who live by your grace lives that commend the gospel of Jesus Christ and that live more and more like our Savior Jesus. We pray you would do that even by the preaching and application of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.